0: Up and down roller coaster ride of suffering, persecution, ministry difficulties, and then there's a different roller coaster ride of delight and happiness, sorrow and shame. And they don't necessarily correspond with one another. You ever felt like that in your life? Things, things go poorly, you feel poorly. Things go well, you feel well. Or sometimes things go well and you're discouraged anyway. Or sometimes things go very poorly, but for some reason this time you, you just found your strength in the Lord. And there's joy in spite of it. And so we, we connect the two roller coasters all the time. Um, they don't always actually connect in our experience. And we see Paul do the same thing um, in his life. So we've already read several times in Second Corinthians how when he was on his way to Corinth to deal with this problem, you remember he had planted the church Then the church rebelled against him, and then he went back to fix everything. The church kicks him out. And so he's really disappointed. He's really at a low point, both spiritually, both practically, both in his ministry and his own validation. He just doesn't feel like things are going well. And then he gets persecution from the outside over his ministry, and he said he, he reached the point where he despaired of life itself. So he's at an incredibly low point, just probably weeks before writing this letter, or possibly days before writing this letter, and now he shares, and we're going to finally get to this final statements of Paul. So he's, he's talked to them, a lot of what he's talked about other than that giving section, we spent three weeks on giving, there's been a lot of suffering, and joy and suffering in this passage. You may remember he started with that God of all comfort. God comforts those with the comfort with which he comforts. And he used the word comfort like 82 times over the course of two words. I'm hyperbole, but you follow what I'm saying. And he says he, he put us through all of that to show us that God is a God who raises the dead. And we fast forward a little bit. We get to chapter 3 in that, or chapter 4, that famous saying that we're jars of clay or earthen vessels. If you have an older translation, and the whole concept of a clay jar is if you drop a clay jar, what will it do? the It shatters. So he puts his power, his glory, the the majesty of Christ inside a jar that that breaks. But the fact of the matter is, is, every time it breaks, what happens to what's on the inside? It spills out. And the glory of God is revealed. And he creates this metaphor. Now, anytime you get into a culture, anytime you get into a A little subculture, like like I like the Marvel movies, or people who do Lord of the Rings, or whatever the thing is, or it could be a techie thing, it could be an, an industry. There's always a lingo. There's always patterns to the way you say something, and Paul creates one for Christianity that we use sometimes, and sometimes we don't, but the basic analogy for life is the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. And so the crucifixion is life now and that's embodied then in suffering and weakness and in shame but all of that only to show that afterwards we raise from the dead in glory we sow in weakness we raise in power and we get that beautiful expression that there's an eternal weight of glory that is coming and paul i'm paul or Scott. Scott referenced earlier I mean he's kind of like Paul he, he got this from Paul So I mean that's awesome But Scott referenced that one day we're going to see A glory That makes us look back on everything else And say man that was, was nothing Totally worth it But the pattern is significant This is the Christian pattern We die with Christ So the call to follow Christ Is not a call to take up the resurrection And follow after me It's a call to take up your what? Your cross. This is the picture, the visual picture of Christianity. So Paul said, first time he was in Corinth, in 1 Corinthians, I desire to know nothing among you except Christ and Him crucified. He was going to manifest the gospel in weakness rather than in strength. Not that we never see the strength. Paul saw the strength of God all the time. We get to see glimpses of the glory that is to be revealed. We see God work in miraculous and spectacular ways. But those are the exceptions to the pattern. The pattern is we embody the cross. So he's walked through all of this. He's defended his ministry and where we're picking up this morning, 2 Corinthians 11, we're going to pick up in just a moment, in verse 16, it's kind of this last, final conclusion matter before he spends a chapter and a half saying, alright, I'm going to be there, you need to be ready when I get there. Which is half, Warning, half excitement, it's like, hey guys, I'm coming, I'm looking forward to see you. I hope, as long as you get your act together. Because if you don't get your act together when I show up, then this is going to be embarrassing because we're not going to have a act meeting. So it's kind of that threat slash happy to see you. That's what's happening next, so that'll pick up. We're going to go through chapter 12, verse uh, 10, but after that he gets into that. Right now we're in this final section where he's defending himself. So he went through defending just the, the weakness as part of the gospel, but then he gets real particular when we started in chapter 10, and he's defending himself as an apostle. Then he compares himself to the false apostles, and he says, you know what, now if we're going to brag, because the false apostles, they're, they're bragging, right? They're saying, look at us. We're, he, Paul calls them super apostles, and we don't know if they came up with that term or Paul's just totally being sarcastic with them, All right? Whatever. Either way, in practice, they're presenting themselves as super apostles, so Paul is going to kind of play a game with them then. If we're going to come up with a basis for judging whether or not someone's a so-called super apostle, well, let's start listing the criteria. That, that's what he's going to do now. Just to be clear, Paul's not, okay, well, we have to be careful what we said. He's not bragging, exactly. He kind of is in their framework but he doesn't operate by their framework he's operating about different frameworks so he's just role playing if you will uh, he's, he's going to brag but from their vantage point and he's going to make a subtle transition and brag from a christian standpoint bragging from a christian standpoint is a very very different thing and we'll see that here so let's go ahead and dive in this is uh second corinthians chapter 11 picking up in verse 16. i repeat let no one think me foolish. Now, if you remember, chapter 11, verse 1, he said, I wish you would bear with me a little foolishness. Let's play a little game, so to speak. Now, he's going to get to the heart of the matter in the game. So I repeat, don't think me actually foolish. I'm not so stupid as to actually say what I'm about to say. Follow what he's saying. I don't really, I'm not really going to brag about myself. But just bear with me, hypothetically, if I were bragging about myself, this is what I would have to say. Y'all with me on, on what he's doing? So, but if, if you do, accept me as a fool so that I too may boast a little. So put me in the foolish category like these super apostles and let's, let's, just, book. let's just play that game by your rules and see how that works. So here's what he has to say. What I'm saying, um, what I am saying with this boastful confidence, I say not with the Lord's authority but as a fool. Like, he's super clarifying everything here. He's like, I'm not really bragging. I'm pretending to brag by your standard. Follow what he's saying? He's re-saying it like a hundred times. So we're definitely on the same page. Since, verse 18, many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. For you gladly bear with fools, being wise yourselves. Now, do you think that's a very serious statement? Well, what's he getting at there? You listen to the boasting of the super apostles. So, how about you listen to my super apostle boasting? You bear, you bore with it then. So, for you bear it if someone makes slaves of you, or devours you, or takes advantages of you, advantage of you, or puts on airs, or strikes you in the face. To my shame, I must say, we were too weak. The super apostles have him on that front. He didn't do a good job taking advantage of them. All right, but he did do a good job on this other side. So, But whatever else anyone dares to boast of, so not this, you know, taking advantage of, you know, uh, telling evangelists, send me your money sort of preaching style. I didn't do well on that, sure. But on this other side, I did pretty well. Again, I'm speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast of that. So he's going to give a few examples. Verse 22, are they Hebrews? So am I. Well, what is Paul? Nationality? He's, he's Jewish? But we know more than that about Paul. He's not just Jewish. He's from a particular tribe. What tribe was that? He's from Benjamin. The tribe that stayed faithful to Judah, the king of Judah, to David, to his descendants, the only other tribe that stayed faithful to Judah's line of kings, He's a Hebrew of Hebrews, he calls himself in another passage. So so am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. There's nothing they can come up with that Paul can't, so am am I, to. Remember, he does this in Philippians. He talks about, what about being a Pharisee? How does he describe himself as a Pharisee? This is as good as I get. A Pharisee of Pharisees. According to the law, hear this blameless. Can you say that with a clear conscience? Can you say that with a clear conscience about any category of your life? I'm totally blameless in that category. And Paul's like, the law. It's a pretty big category. Blameless. Wow. This is Paul, so I am all of these things, but one more question. Verse 23. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm a better servant Christ. Well, what's he mean? I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, often near death. Now, how's he describing his more servantishness to Christ? How is he more of a servant, a better servant to Christ? He's suffered, it's his suffering, he's it's his pain. It's ultimately going to even be his anxiety and depression. All of those things make him a better servant of Christ because he's living before them Christ crucified. He's a perfect example of Christ in that regard because he's suffering. And he's going to serve the ultimate witness. Now the ultimate witness in Christian tradition is called what? Martyrdom. Exactly. In fact the Greek word for witness is martyr. So the ultimate witness is to die. Think about We're saying the ultimate witness of a Christian is to die for your faith, to die like Christ. We've already got this built into our lingo, into our system. We just don't always plug into it. So now he's transitioned from bragging about his heritage, bragging about his righteousness, to now he's boasting in the Lord. And these are not the same. So far greater labors, far more imprisonments, countless beatings often near death five times i received at the hands of the jews the 40 lashes less one i love the way they do the math there so 40 lashes less one how many 39 Thirty-nine. very good it's a lot of lashes it used to be, to be fair that's a lot of lashes so he's received that five times i'm sure he's very particular to remember all five of them it's a big deal so he received that five times three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Do you know anything about what it means to be stoned? I was envisioned as a child, this was like people grabbing little rocks from the side of the road and throwing them at somebody. And that sounds, that sounds painful enough. That's not what stoning is. Stoning is where you pick up like heavy rocks and you don't throw them at the person you throw them down because the person has been beat down to the ground, and you smash their head in with the rocks. Now, Paul got stoned, and they threw him outside of the city. Why do you think they threw his body outside of the city when they got done stoning him? There was no reason to expect him to be alive. That's this experience. So some speculate that he possibly even did die when that happened. And God, Resuscitated him. we don't know. The story doesn't specifically say that that's what happened. But either way, you don't just get up and walk away from that. But Paul did. Three times I was shipwrecked. That doesn't even include the one that Acts spends all the time on later in Paul's life when he's on his way to Jerusalem. So they don't even include that one. This is before then. He's been, uh, let's see, three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys And danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at the sea, danger from false brothers, and toil, hardship, through many a sleepless night, and hunger and thirst, often without food, and cold and exposure. Well, it's like no matter where Paul goes, he goes to town, suffering. He goes, hides in the wilderness, suffering. You can't even go to sleep at night and get rest, sleepless night. I mean, you kind of know this experience. Some of this is physical. Some of this is opponents. Some of this is circumstances. Some of this is anxiety. Verse 28 he says that explicitly. And apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Paul's genuinely concerned for the body of Christ. He wants to see unity. In the body. He wants to see faithfulness in the body. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? What's he saying there? There's an emotional connection to him and whatever's going on in the church that he is leading. He feels their pain, he feels their joy. It's an emotional roller coaster. Verse 30 If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. See what he did? Am I Hebrew? Yes. Am an Israelite? Yes. Am I a follower of Christ? Yes. So let's look at that follower of Christ. He didn't say how many sermons he preached. That is how many books of the Bible I've written. This is how many scripture verses I have memorized. That's not what he's quoting. What's he quoting here? It's his Boast in the Lord. All the ways he has embodied the cross for the mission that he is on, including even the anxiety of the mission that it comes all right so let's fill in the first point so our weakness reveals god's strength this is not a new point as far as second corinthians is concerned he's been saying this since the first paragraph is that the suffering that paul had was all designed to show that god raises the dead spiritually in that particular context is what he's talking about but our weakness then shows God's strength, just like when we were that earthen vessel, the jar of clay, and it breaks. God's strength is revealed. The fact that Paul gets up and keeps going day after day after day shows that this is not Paul working. This is God working in Paul. The strength of the Lord is clear and manifest in his life. So back to the famous passage in Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. The All things in that passage, you have to understand, is specifically suffering, is poverty, as we might say, cancer. We might add any sort of negative feeling in life, but it's also the reverse. It's also, I can do success. I can do the spotlight. I can do glory. I can do all of these things in ministry without losing who I am because Christ is Gives me strength from beginning to end. All of this weakness in particular. So if Paul's going to boast, he's not going to boast about the highlights. He's going to boast about the bottom. Because those moments at the bottom emphasize the power of God greater than anything else. Well, if you're a great preacher and you can draw a crowd, maybe it's because you're a great preacher. Maybe it's the Lord. But if you're a terrible preacher and the Word of God transforms people proof that it's the Lord. You see, you see how that works? He's saying that his weakness further emphasizes that the success, that the strength of the perseverance comes from the Lord. Let's keep going. So he's going to give us one more example. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is verse 31. Um, he who is blessed forever knows that I am not lying. He's calling God as his witness. i telling you the truth. At Damascus, the governor of under King Eretus, was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. Now that sounds really exciting from our perspective. Paul sharing this story as a humiliation. He didn't win. He had to flee. It was so bad, he had to flee in a basket and run out of town because he was going to lose. So he's sharing the story as an example Weakness is an example of suffering. He's still continuing one thought So remember chapter numbers, verse numbers, they are added later. Um, That's not Paul's original intention that this would be broke up into chapter 12 and then verse 1. That's just for the sake of us being able to find the same verse at the same time. So let's keep flowing with Paul's thought. He says, I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. Now he's actually going to do what he said he wasn't going to do, basically. He's sharing the, the low points. He's going to share one of the high points. It's a very interesting story. We wish we knew more details about it, but we don't. So there's nothing to be gained because if all he shares is the high point and people focus on that high point, it's going to mess up his whole ministry. But for the sake of example, high point. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ. Just to be completely clear, the man that he knows in Christ is himself. Talking third person. You ever try talking about yourself in third person? Does that ever feel weird? It does. Yeah, it felt weird here too. Okay, but he's doing it. So, he says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Let's examine both phrases. 14 years ago. That predates Paul being called Paul. He's a Christian by that point, but he's still going by Saul before he goes into the apostolic role and that first missionary trip, Barnabas was in charge, and then Paul curses the dude with blindness, comes out on the other side of the apostle Paul, and then Barnabas kind of loses the spotlight. This is before even that took place. This is 14 years ago, probably in that season where he's spending time learning from the Lord directly. We don't know a lot about that, but he's like, so 14 years ago, I know a man who was caught up to the third heaven now let's explain that third heaven real quick because that can mislead people if you're not familiar with the way they talked about the world you can see this in genesis chapter one you can see it throughout their explanations of the reality across the old testament it's used explicitly here in this regard the first heaven is where birds fly. it's the there's an expanse in the heavens heavens plural almost exclusively in the old testament Many times in the New Testament, heavens is plural, because they, from a visual standpoint, just had a lingo system that described three different heavens. The first heaven is where birds fly. You look up into the, we would call it what? Atmosphere. Sky. Sky works too. The atmosphere of our planet is heaven number one. But then, there's other stuff out there that we can look at, that are always still, even if there's a cloud in the way. Even if birds fly overhead, there's something past that, and we would call that space. We'll go with space. This is everything else, basically. The sun, the stars, the moon all inhabit that third level. Sorry, second level. But then they would recognize that there's, there's something beyond that. There's something more than just those two levels. And we see consistently in the Old Testament that the realm of God is is that third level? Now, to be clear, they didn't think if they didn't know what a spaceship was, but I've done it. If you got on a spaceship, you would never get to third heaven. It's in a different realm, we'd say, but they thought about it as God being above. And He would come down to them through the heavens to them. So Paul is saying, I know a guy, talking about himself, that got to go to the third heaven and take a peek. That's a big deal. Because not only did He get to go take a peek, What happened to him afterwards? He came back. It's a really, really big deal. So he got to go see the third heaven and come back. Then he says, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. So did his flesh go to the third heaven? Or did he just have this out-of-body experience in the third heaven? He's not even sure. He doesn't know which one it was. He just knows what he saw. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Paradise is actually not a biblical word. It is a Babylonian word. If you know your Old Testament, you know why Babylonian words would exist in scriptures because they went into exile for a season. And paradise was a big deal in Babylon because they were known for their big fancy wonder of the ancient world. Garden. Paradise is the Babylonian word for garden. And so Jews used that word paradise to refer to The garden, where the tree of life is. We're told in Revelation that the tree of life is still in the garden. It's still in paradise, but it's in heaven. And so this is the same thing. Third heaven and paradise are the same thing. So he goes to paradise. He goes to the third heaven, where we're told the tree of life is there. Jesus makes the same statement regarding this to the uh, thief on the cross. Today you will be with me in paradise, third heaven. So he's in this third heaven. And here's what happens. Again, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. So is this because it's impossible to describe what he saw or because he's not allowed? Probably both. Probably a combination of the two, he sees this vision that he cannot even relate. Even if he was allowed to, he can't. On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weakness. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool. In other words, if he boasted about this vision, it wouldn't be lying. He wouldn't be making something up. He wouldn't be stretching the truth. It'd be the very real concept that he had a very real revelation from God. He says, but I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees me or hears from me. Paul was very worried that people would think too highly of him. Oh, we have the exact opposite problem. Do we not? We're very worried about how lowly someone thinks of us. Paul was worried that people would think too highly. So to prevent that from happening, we get this interesting section. Verse 7. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of Of the revelations A thorn Was given me in the flesh A messenger of Satan To harass me To keep me from becoming uh, Conceited So the thorn is Given to him And we'll see clearly by God It's a messenger of Satan Coming to him by God's authority To keep him from being Deceited Now there are four common options what scholars say this might be and I would love to just sit here and unpack all the historical reasons why it, it's a certain one but the fact of the matter is is no matter which one I landed on we could make a good case for any of the four so it's most common I've actually heard several others but they're not at all common one is just that this is a physical element of some kind there's something going on um, in his life, maybe he's got bad eyesight. There's pretty good arguments for that. Maybe it's some other sort of physical condition going on. He does, it is literally a thorn in the flesh. So there's, there's a good argument from a literal grammatical interpretation standpoint that this is a literal thorn in the flesh. And whatever that thorn in the flesh is, it's a messenger from Satan. Another option is that it's just these opponents that he's facing. Everywhere he goes, there's a thorn in his flesh, and it's more generic. It's just the idea that there's always an antagonist anywhere he goes. He shows up somewhere, there's Judaizers. He shows up over here, there's people preaching a a deistic gospel. Or over here, they're preaching a Gnostic gospel. He goes somewhere, and it's like he just knows guaranteed he's going to have a thorn in the flesh in any of those scenarios. A third option is depression. That he has physical, mental, literal anxiety and depression over what's going on in the churches and just using modern techniques we can probably diagnose paul with this based on his confessions in scripture the way he feels the anxiety that he has that expression we despaired of life itself he has daily pressure over everything that's happening in the churches pressure is a very common term to describe that feeling of anxiety and a fourth option is that it's a basically if you think of having a guardian angel this is the reverse this is having like a damaging demon, guardian angel versus a damaging demon. So I think the John MacArthur Bible takes the fourth option. I think that's the least likely of them, but I'll, I'll concede it's it's believable. I think it's probably the physical or the, the emotional depression. But point being, and this is significant. Any of the four makes sense. Any of the four work theologically. So here's this: God gave. One of those four options to Paul. On purpose, for his good, for his own. He either gave him depression on purpose, he gave him opponents on purpose, gave him a demonic spirit to torment him on purpose, or that a physical illness gave him a physical illness on purpose. One of these scenarios, God has purposefully put in Paul's life for the sake of controlling his behavior. For the sake of directing the attitude of his heart but keep going what's he say about this verse eight three times I pleaded with the Lord about this that it should leave me three times probably clearly a parallel to Jesus in the garden praying the three different times but here he's prayed three specific times and I feel like only three you know, you've got this thing why not because I think it's very clear he stopped because after the third time he got an answer. But he said to me, verse 9, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. So God gave Paul a very direct answer to this prayer. It wasn't later. It wasn't not yet. It was no. I'm not removing the thorn in the flesh. Well, who put it there? God put it there. He gave Paul a thorn in the flesh so that he Better embodied the cross everywhere he went because his power was made perfect in weakness. So let's fill in our next blank. So our weakness makes us rely on God for strength. Our weakness makes us rely on God for strength. So here what Paul's saying: he had reason to boast, legitimate reason to boast. He could go around saying, look at me, I went to heaven, I'm going to write a best-selling book about it and make a lot of money. Okay, sorry, that was too low. He's not going to make a big deal about that because that would make people elevate him in the wrong way. That shouldn't be what elevates Paul. In fact, Paul's not trying to elevate himself at all. What is Paul trying to do? Who is Paul trying to elevate? Who is Paul trying to glorify? Who is Paul trying to put everyone's attention and focus on? It's Jesus Christ. So all of this weakness is designed to make him rely on God more. His weakness makes it more obvious that God is the one at work. So this is a scheme for us. This is a framework for us. When you experience weakness, maybe even depression, physical illness, opposition, even spiritual conflict, this is God's design to help you rely on him. Is his purpose. He's doing it on purpose. Let's the third point. Our weakness forces us to find validation in God alone. Validation in God alone. So I'll just give you kind of the peer behind the curtain in ministry. Go around as a pastor, I go to some convention, I go to a gathering. There's always this tendency to the first question. Everybody asks one another, is basically, how big is your church? Why do you think that question gets asked? Because they're concerned about the kingdom, right? They're really curious how much of the kingdom you've had an impact on. You no. Know, what's happening is it's status. it's measuring sticks. What's the budget there? How many baptisms do you have? How many small you have? How new is your building? How many seats will you hold? You're in the book yet? You know, all these sorts of things. What kind of degrees do you have? Well, that's just for ministry. You know how that works in your world. Whatever piece of culture you're in, something validates you. I know for a long time, I just knew when I turned 30 in ministry, I would have validation. Turns out it took losing my hair. That's what that Okay, because I'm just, like, I'm going to trust the young kid that's trying to do something. Right? We're looking for validation somewhere. So Paul's saying God removed all his validation. Paul couldn't say, man, look, everywhere I go, God just blesses me with resources and money and success. He can't validate himself that way. He can't validate himself with external circumstances. In fact, oftentimes Paul goes somewhere and is made to look the fool. He looks like a fool wherever he goes. He's preaching a gospel that from a standpoint of the Jews is offensive and from the standpoint of the Greeks is stupid you believe God raised someone from the dead and we should follow him? That's kind of batty. Paul says, but I'll be a fool. I'll be a fool for Christ. Because who validates Paul? God does. Who validates you? We have a tendency, and this is confession on my part, we all have a tendency, to find validation in some external work, in some mark of righteousness, in some form of achievement, in some form of success. The only validation we need is from Christ. We have been justified in his sight by the blood of Christ upon our faith in him. We are declared his children, his sons and daughters. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we may be called children. God, this is where our validation comes from. This is where Paul's validation came from. But see how he closes this out. So therefore, this is partway through 9, let's just reread 9. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient to you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I I am content... With weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I want to harp on the one word there in verse 9. He boasts all the more gladly. God's glory in our weakness. And the last points in the outline. God's glory in our weakness is the basis for our Christian joy. See what Paul's saying. See how this works. We talked about that rollercoaster ride. Now emotional and literal, circumstantial rollercoasters might not be in sync. Because the only real variable for Paul is the joy. is not coming from the circumstances. It's not coming from the negative circumstances. It's not coming from the positive circumstances. It's coming from one source and one source alone. The glory of God being revealed. Have you ever seen... Someone you're connected to, a family member, perhaps a child, is one of the best illustrations. They do something successful. They do something, they play a sport well, they write a poem well, they accomplish some task well in a way that surprised you. What emotion wells up in you immediately? It's it's adorable. We call it pride sometimes, but it's it's a positive form of pride. It's not an arrogant pride, it's a a, wow. That's amazing. Now, take the same thing when someone represents us. A hero in a story, a soldier in a real war, a leader in a government does something honorable, does something respectful, does something worthy of glory, we well up with the same sort of joy. Now take that one step higher, or infinitely steps higher. You look at God, and God accomplishes something amazing. We prayed in that song, God, show us your glory. We've seen it in one way already. So Jesus, the word, became flesh, and we beheld is glory full of grace full of truth and then we see that glory day after day as we walk in faith and we see the glory of the Lord revealed primarily in weakness. It stirs that same joy. if you see it from the right angle, the suffering counts as joy, not as trial. James made the same argument in this letter and then one day I love that song that one day when we all. I mean, what a day of what of rejoicing it will be. Because we're going to see Jesus face to face. And when we have embodied the cross in this life, we're going to embody the resurrection and joy and glory of redemption for all eternity. The surpassing greatness of his power. So let's trust in that God. God. Instead of our circumstances, instead of whatever else, you're leaning back on, let's lean on Christ. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you that you have redeemed. We thank you that Christ made the way for us. The veil was torn in two. That Christ, once for all, offered his own flesh, his own blood as a sacrifice to secure eternal redemption. And that by our faith in the blood of Christ, by our faith in Jesus, we are made whole. We are redeemed, we are forgiven, we are adopted into your family, we are validated, we're justified by our faith in Christ the Lord. God, I pray that you would equip us, that we could say with Paul that we've learned the secret to life is that we can do all things through Christ who gives us strength. So God, let us rest on his strength this morning. Let your word... Lead us, let your word guide us, let your word transform us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. The word says, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Have a great afternoon.